This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Carol, we are keeping an eye on, obviously, everything related to the health side of this. No one is following it more closely at Bloomberg than Drew Armstrong. He leads all of our health coverage here in the U.S. He is spearheading a massive team that is coming at this from all angles. He joins us on the phone today. Uh, Drew, uh, how are you? Hey, guys. um, Greetings from the suburbs of New York City. Um, I'm doing well. Good, good. Um, So tell us... What's the one thing we need to know today? I mean, you're seeing all of this so in-depth. What do we need to know based on what we've heard from public officials, what you're hearing from health officials, and sort of squaring that with maybe this market enthusiasm? Yeah, I, I think the big thing that people are watching right now, and this has really been you know, the thing to watch all along, is what are we seeing in new U.S. cases in the various outbreaks here? And that's I want to be clear, you know, looking at the number of new cases is a leading indicator, but it's also a very imperfect one just because of the significant problems in the U.S. with broad, comprehensive testing for this disease that you would like to do. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read uh, stories, um, many of them written by us, about some of the problems with getting enough tests out there, Mm -hmm. getting everybody tested who needs to be tested, and so on and so forth. But, you know, right now, as a leading indicator, it's kind of the best thing that we have right now. And we've seen a number of, you know, indications that in New York and New Jersey, which are two of the hottest uh, outbreaks going on in the United States, that new infections, imperfectly counted as they may be, appear to be slowing. And that, you know, is overall good news in terms of when can some of these restrictions on movement and on business being open and on people having to stay home uh, begin to loosened. There are a ton of caveats attached to that. Right. But if you were looking for good news, this does feel to be a little bit of that. Right. Global cases topping 1.39 million deaths, exceeding 79,000. Those are the latest numbers from Johns Hopkins. You know, you speak of um, imperfect models, Drew. Is China the model from a health case basis, the right model to be looking in terms of the trajectory you know, I think there are some things that China tells us and some things that don't. Uh, um, there's there's two ways to think about it. Like when we look at what happened in China in Wuhan, we, we've seen the exact same dynamic play out in other locations around the world. You know, I mean, and I and I and I mean that from the standpoint that, you know, there are some significant screw ups and then problems and then consequences that happened there that have happened uh, everywhere else. I mean, you know, first in China, we had basically the authorities say, hey, this isn't that big of a deal. We have this well in hand. You know, I think they were even saying it doesn't appear to be human-human transmission. And then we entered a period where they didn't really have enough testing capacity. And so it seemed like cases were only rising a little bit. But in fact, we had no idea how big the outbreak was there because they didn't have great testing capacity. Then all of a sudden they got it. Cases exploded. And then by the time uh, that happened. The healthcare system in Wuhan got overwhelmed, and they had to build immense new capacity. They had a lot of excess deaths. Um, those—that's exactly what happened in Italy. 
um, that's a, that, that's very similar to what happened in the United States. I mean, we had you know federal leadership here that was saying this is well contained; it's not that big of a deal. And then we had a massive problem with testing, and then all right. of a sudden this thing was out of the list. I mean, we've seen the same exact dynamic play out. Um, what I think the lessons we can't take away from from China are, you know, one they did a lockdown that I think would never be allowed in a democracy period. I mean, you know, people were physically unable to leave their homes. In many cases, there were um, reports of house-to-house searches to find sick people and um, haul them off to um, quarantine centers. Um, You know, it it may look similar in some respects, but I think that there are some aspects of that that were much more um, uh, severe. And, you know, the other issue is that we've seen reports from, you know, the U.S. intelligence community that they appear to have significantly undercounted um, or underrepresented uh, the severity of the of the outbreak there. Right. And so I think we still have some missing pieces of information from China uh, that we really don't know how bad it was. And that may have influenced how the world thought about this disease as well. I mean, you know, academics and healthcare folks, their, their early understanding of this thing was really relied upon by what we heard coming out of China. Yeah. And it's possible that we got a very imperfect picture of that. So, Drew, we were just talking with our colleague Sarah Ponzek, who you know well. Uh, just a few minutes ago, she drove from New York to Florida over the past few days and you know, painted a picture for us of a country, as you know very well, that is very uneven in its response. As you talk to bureau chiefs, your reporters across the country. What's the sense you're getting of the U.S. response, which feels sort of checkered at best? I think there's something that you, we all have to understand about the response here. And I, and I say that, and I, and I agree with you that the response is checkered, but also, you know, outbreaks are local. Disease yeah. transmission happens locally. It is a person-to-person phenomenon. And so, you know, it is, when we talk about a U.S. response, um, I don't think there should be, you know, it doesn't feel like there should be homogeneity in that just because that's not how this works. I mean, these are these are responses that need to be locally calibrated. And one thing that, you know, there has been quite a quite a bit of criticism of the federal government in its response to this. But, it is, you know, a, a response that's appropriate in New York, where we have 140,000 almost cases confirmed so far, may be very, very different than a what a response looks like in Wyoming, which, you know, doesn't have a massive subway system where everybody's holding the same pole and shared cars and, you know, close confines and things like that. Um, You know, responses are almost inevitably going to be appropriate to the local situation, even if they do share some um, some commonalities throughout you know, aspects of social distancing and things like that um, in order to avoid spreading cases. But an urban location is going to be really different than a rural one. Um, A dense city is going to be very, you know, dense public transportation city is going to be very different from a car-driven city. So, you know, I think that when we talk about a patchwork, I think in some cases, you know, that is appropriate. I think what you don't want to see is a patchwork of how seriously people take it or how closely they, you know, follow the expert recommendations that are being given to them based on those circumstances. Hey, just quickly, you know, you write about treatment versus cure. Is it the race for a treatment versus the race for a cure for the virus helping or complicating the U.S. and the world's ability to get on top of all of this? Well, I, you know, that's a really important dynamic that you that you bring up because in reality, a, a cure here in almost certainly does not mean you know, a drug that eliminates, that, that just kills off the virus. We have, we have cured, we have cured in the, in the true sense, you know, one virus ever, and that's hepatitis C. Um, so it's, you know, humanity, one uh, viruses, a whole lot more than that. 
However, we're pretty good at developing vaccines, and our own immune systems are, are relatively good at pushing back some of these infections. And so when we talk about cure, we should really be talking about vaccines. Um, you know, therapeutics are, are, are in all likelihood going to be the type of things that are used for people who are sick enough to be in the hospital and need them. Um, you, you don't need to be administering therapeutics um, in all likelihood to people who are experiencing the, you know, relatively mild, if extremely unpleasant version of this. You know, the body, 99% of patients um, from what we've seen so far are recovering from this disease uh, more or less on their own. You know, some of those folks are getting hospitalized and are getting supportive care, and some of that can be quite intense. But, you know, I, I think that when we think about how therapeutic, what the role therapeutics are going to play, it's probably going to be for some of the people who are the most, um, most severe folks and in most in need of medical attention. And so when you're talking to your medical folks, Drew Armstrong, what are they saying about this whole push within the administration or at least in corners of the administration around this uh, anti-malaria drug, which I will not try and pronounce, uh, that is certainly catching on uh, in at least rhetorically with the president? Yeah. So that drug is hydroxychloroquine. It's an old uh, malaria drug. Um, Listen, I mean, you know, if you look around at the evidence, it's extremely limited. Um, there haven't really been readouts from any meaningful trial that tells you whether or not this thing actually works. People say, you know, hey, we gave this to 10 patients and they all got better, um, you know, or a lot of them got better or, you know, six out of 10 of them got better. I mean, the reality is that most people do get better on their own. I think the data on this has been extremely checkered. There's been a lot of criticism of these studies. There has not been a large conclusive study that tests this drug against a placebo. Um, you know, President Trump has faced pushback from the stage by people like, um, you know, Dr. Tony Fauci, who's right. the, uh, a head of a subunit of the, of the NIH. There is just very, very little evidence right now in support of this. If it works, that's fantastic news. I think, you know, one of the things that we hear over and over and over again from the people, though, who are developing these drugs is you need to find out what actually does work. And, you know, having a system where we let everyone try everything without any proof whatsoever muddies the waters terribly. Mm. It puts people on therapies that may or may not work and excludes them from therapies that may uh, that we that actually may. And it, 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 it makes it much harder for us to get an answer on what works here, what is going to help the most number of people to get that answer quickly and then to get people onto those drugs. So um, there is a there is a urging inside the scientific community to do this the right way. Right. Um, you know, you want to you want to give people hope and you want to give people care, but you also want to give people something that works and that's backed by evidence so we don't waste their, you know, their medical opportunities, yeah. their time, their right. money, all of those things um, uh, while while testing, you know, while while trying therapies well, that don't have an effect. And, Right. We want to get it right because we also don't want to see any kind of relapse of an outbreak. You know, one thing I want to ask you, Drew, is, and this was based on a conversation Jason and I had yesterday, you know, where one of our guests said, basically, we're not going to be able to get back to work fully or, you know, embrace kind of our social lives like we used to, like big stadiums, until we get a vaccine. Is that the case? I think that's probably, you know, I... There are definitely aspects of that. I think you're, you know, think about your own lives. And, you know, if, if someone, if Governor Cuomo or President Trump said, hey, you know, we've mostly got the all clear, there's some circulating. I don't know if, you know, how many people would necessarily hop right out to a restaurant, you know, start hugging and, you know, shaking hands with people they haven't seen in months, you know, grab the subway pole, get in a taxi cab, go back to work. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to take time. You know, one thing that vaccines are 
are, are good at also is, you know, is, is creating a level of certainty and comfort. Um, you know, people want to know not only have we successfully pushed back this disease into a smaller, smaller, a smaller and smaller number of people through the social distancing measures and the mitigation measures, uh, but also that, you know, even if they are struck by it, that they are, you know, that they or they are exposed to it, that they're protected. And I think a vaccine is pretty crucial in all likelihood in creating that level of confidence just from a you know, personal comfort standpoint. And Drew, what about this uh, notion of the antibody test? How realistic is that? Because that's something that a lot of folks that I've been talking to even casually are saying that could be something that sort of helps spur us back uh, to work or back into something resembling normal life. Yeah, it's theoretically a very, very interesting idea. And if it's perfect and if it's perfectly accurate, you know, which is not necessarily a given, let's be really clear here, you can have all of these tests come with tend to come with some level of false positive yeah. or false negative. And one of the things that, you know, critics of this idea say is that, well, you know, if 2% of the population has it, you know, or 10% of the population has it, and the false positive rate on these antibody tests, which, you know, these are detections of, did you at some point have this virus and might you now have some level of immunity? You know, if your rate of the disease in society is anywhere close to the false positive rate on your trial, you might run, you know, you might run these antibody tests on 10,000 people and say, you know, well, hey, we found, you know, X number of people who were positive. These people, you know, presumably they're immune, but it might just be that, you know, those are the people who were who are the false positives yeah. in your test. And what you're detecting isn't people who are immune, but just erroneous tests. Um, so, I think they're going to be, you know, I think one of the things that we, that people do think that they're going to be quite useful for is measuring the prevalence of this disease, uh, especially in places that have had a lot of it, like yeah. New York, uh, yeah. and where I think it may be, you know, where I think it, it remains to be seen how useful it is, is going to be on a purely individual basis. And I think to do that, you're going to need a level of certainty about the accuracy of these. And that is something that, you know, that, that we know people are looking at now. I mean, you, obviously there is a desire to have this be as accurate as possible so you can get exactly the type of answers about, hey, do I have some level of immunity here? Can I go back to work? You know, did I have this and was I perhaps mildly symptomatic or was that, you know, thing that I thought was the flu back in February? In fact, this, those are the types of questions that you can get answers to if these tests are accurate enough. Right. You are our rock star, no doubt about it. Drew Armstrong, thank you so much. It is a must-read on the Bloomberg Terminal and also at Bloomberg.com, so everyone should check it out. Drew Armstrong, busy, busy guy and his team. He is the team leader for U.S. Healthcare at Bloomberg News, joining us once again on the phone from New York City. I always feel like I get clarity after I talk to Drew. Listen, I've told the entire New York Bureau this, that when we look back on this, Drew Armstrong is going to be the hero in all of it. I mean, the way he's coordinated the coverage has just been unbelievable and highly, highly recommend. And we talk about this. uh, We recommend it all the time. If you go to Bloomberg.com slash coronavirus, you will get all of his team's coverage and much more. Uh, it's, It's a great destination. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's talk about a, ma- a story that is in the magazine. Well, and it's not just a story. It's a book, book. Carol. I can't. I'm so, I've been so excited for this book uh, to come out. Sarah Fryer wrote it. It's called No Filter. It's about Instagram. There's a fantastic excerpt uh, in the magazine this week. Can't get enough of it. Uh, Sarah joins us on the phone from San Francisco. First of all, congratulations. This is an amazing, totally. amazing accomplishment. How are you feeling? I feel good. I mean, this is what was crazy to me about this 
story is just how much of it hadn't been hadn't been uncovered. And so I, I'm really excited to share the first excerpt today, but also feel like there's there's so much that people will be able to learn about, not just the tension between Instagram and Facebook, but also Instagram's cultural impact on our world. So want to also bring in Joel Weber, of course, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. He's on the phone from Brooklyn. I mean, this is such, you know, it's a great, we know a great book already, uh, and you've got an excerpt in the magazine, but it is such a Businessweek story as well. We've been following Instagram and Facebook and kind of, uh, I almost want to say the strife between the two, Joel. Yeah, I, I am so excited for Sarah. Um, I think this book is just going to be amazing. And I uh, was really honored to be able to publish um, this particular excerpt because I think it really shows um, a side of Instagram and Facebook that, you know, we just no one's really seen it like this before. And, you know, Instagram was this little darling app just barely um, a decade ago. And, you know, it just looks like this bargain that Mark Zuckerberg happened to pick up for, you know, pennies and now has turned it into a major cash cow that is part of this family of apps that he's built at Facebook. But in order to get there along the way, there was a lot of internal strife and tension. And that's ultimately what Sarah was able to bring to light in this particular part of her excerpt. And, um, Sarah, you know, like there's this pastry that makes an appearance uh, in this excerpt. <laughs> Can I just ask you? What? Like, this is, yeah, what, what is, uh, what is the, the cruffin? Oh, it's, it's the San Francisco version of the rainbow bagel, basically. It's, it's, a, it's a croissant muffin. And it plays <laughs> it was it, 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 at a, the launch event for Instagram TV. This, this launch event was like, the most Instagrammable thing possible. They had acai bowls and matcha lattes, <laughs> and um, at a sister event in New York, they had like champagne filled with, with cotton candy. Uh, really, it, it, I use that event as an example to show the contrast between Instagram and Facebook. Instagram is really about um, presenting your life as this this beautiful manicured version. And Facebook is about this building your network and having friend connections. And the the philosophies of the two products really align with the founders and, and what kind of people they are. Zuckerberg being this dominant force trying to win over more and more of, of humanity's attention. And Instagram trying to create a place where you know, culture can be appreciated and people can become uh, become recognized for their own brands. And so, so eventually these two clash. And when they're announcing IGTV in 2018, that was a moment for Sistrum realizing that Instagram wasn't really going to be allowed to thrive without without Zuckerberg's intense involvement in every step of the way, which is very different than the independence the company has projected in the past. And and Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, you really tease out some sort of personality conflicts, too, that obviously had huge business implications, as you're alluding to, uh, Sarah. I would imagine there's much more uh, in the book uh, about this, because that was sort of the, the key point of tension that Carol alluded to uh, at the top of the conversation. Yeah, Zuckerberg is is all about winning. Uh, he he's not about you know being careful and and having 
um, you know, a lot of attention to detail. And so, and so we see that play out in their product strategy. I mean, Zuckerberg tried a million different things to counter the rise of Snapchat. Instagram tried one and it worked. And, and I think that, uh, Eventually, when Instagram's growth actually accelerated after copying Snapchat stories, Zuckerberg saw a threat to Facebook. He saw that the Instagram way of doing things was gaining popularity, maybe at the expense of Facebook's longevity. And being the um, the dominating force that he is and really caring about his flagship product, he started talking about cannibalization, the idea that Instagram success would eat into Facebook's potential and started driving the founders away. Right, and impact basically his baby, Facebook. Like it's just, it's really phenomenal. Um, Sarah, congratulations. We're so excited for you. The book is No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. Uh, Check out the book, check out the excerpt that is uh, in the magazine this week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. While companies, as we know, are retrenching, we talk about cutting back on spending, letting go of workers, stopping buybacks, and conserving cash and cutting costs in light of the virus. Here with what that means for IT spending, the good and the bad, Crawford Del Perret, he's president at IDC Research uh, Xerox, or IDC, forgive me, IDC, and he's on the phone from Framingham, Massachusetts. Um, nice to have you back with us, Crawford. Talk to us a little bit about um, IT spending, because we do know companies are retrenching. Any kind of early data that you guys are seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Carol. Um, so we, th- there is some early data. I mean, this has been an extraordinary um, set of circumstances that we've seen. So we were looking at an IT market uh, last year, um, you know, you're looking at a market that is growing in excess of uh, two years ago, excess of five percent. Last year, excess uh, in, in excess of almost five percent, four point eight percent. In January this year, we were forecasting a market to grow about five point one percent. We've taken that down to the IT market will shrink by almost three percent this year, down about two point seven percent, and that's based on a GDP forecast of about a two percent decline. Uh, which is not uncommon where IT tends to, uh, you know, get stalled. There's a lot of tangible things that you can stop buying, and then you, you tend to see a, a, a slap down. Um, th- there's a lot of characteristics here that are different and uh, different from, say, the cycle that we saw in 2008 uh, and 2009, where we think this might be a little bit less severe. But for sure, we've seen a huge, a huge readjust. And, and not surprisingly, we're seeing it across the board. But of course, we're seeing it in the vertical segments, the industry segments like hospitality, transportation, uh, manuf- parts of manufacturing. But we're also seeing it in the category you were just talking about, which is the small and medium business, particularly the emerging companies where they just need to lock down all their expenses and really try to, to, to go into survival mode a bit until we get through this. Well, and survival mode is exactly where I was going to go next, Crawford. You anticipated it so beautifully. You know, this notion that you had a lot of companies, and I mean, I think our company would fall into this category, who probably did some... I, I wouldn't call it panic spending, but some unexpected spending to get everybody set up and sort of get people in a place where they could continue operating and, and if not blowing budgets, at least reallocating things. And I wonder how long that takes to sort out. So take us a level down and help us understand what, what companies generally are thinking around that. 
Yeah, so it's a great point, Jason. And we've seen a lot of this, right? We've seen, I, you know, we've been in constant communication with the end customers as well as the intermediary companies, the companies that provide the technology and provide the services. And we've seen that across the board. You know, I've, I've talked to large service providers that have had to stand up uh, health organizations in places like um, uh, large major cities, large government bodies, where, you know, over a weekend, they need an instant, you know, a, a, a new set of laptops for, you know, multiple hundreds of, of, of customers. Um, you know, good luck if, if you're in the market right now for a laptop as a, as a small business or a consumer. We've seen a big surge in demand there. But interestingly, when you get underneath that for the whole year, we actually still think that you'll see um, contraction um, in those in those kinds of segments. We think that you know you look at the you look at the PC market, which had had you know a relatively you know nice run. We're looking at you know an IT spending. You know we we expect that market to drop in almost including tablets, almost 10%. We expect the infrastructure market, you know, servers and large storage systems, that'll drop by about 4%. Um, IT services, that'll drop between 2 and 4%. The only category that'll likely show growth, to your point, is interesting. It's the software business. Yeah. Um, that business, we expect, well, and that, that business, We'll just for perspective, that business was between about nine percent growth. That'll go down to about two percent growth. But mm. again, what and this is an interesting trend that you know we we've been talking about for a while, and that is that when you start buying these things as a service, right? You can't shut them off. You've basically bet your right. business on a lot of these <laughs> services. So that basically means that you know you're in it for a penny, you're in it for a pound, and and you're going to continue to buy these services if you're a a thing going forward, which we expect most many companies to be. Crawford, you are one of those individuals that we folks at Bloomberg have been talking to for years, and we have talked to you through various crises, whether it's coming out of the financial crisis, you know, whether it's after 9-11. I mean, we have talked to you for a long time about um, the industry and the tech industry, generally speaking. I want to ask you, I mean, I hope you guys are doing okay. I hope your team is doing okay. And I'm curious how you see this virus um, changing the world. I mean, what do you see as the most important, you know, way that the world's going to be different on the other side? Yeah, well, thanks for you know, thanks for that. And and you know, we're all doing it as, as best that we can. You know, yeah. we're 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 a company, a thousand people in in fifty countries around the world, and we're all basically working from home right now. But as far as we can tell, most people are safe, and that's 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 very important. So I think that what you're going to see on the other side is a couple of things, and some will be very tangible and some, sorry, sorry very, um, I think, top of mind, and some maybe a little bit less so. I think that one of the most tangible things you'll see are the barriers are going to come down in some things that uh, regulation has been stopping those barriers from coming down. I'm talking about stuff like telemedicine. Mm. I think you're going to start to see a scenario where, you know what, um, payers are going to have to get out of the way. And if a person can be diagnosed over a webcam, if a, if, if a person can, can still be part of the system and get a quality diagnosis, um, whether that's crossing state lines that aren't able to be crossed today, I think those things start to change. So I think we're going to see a big change in, th- in those kinds of services going forward as we come out the other side. I also think we're going to see that how um, 
the sort of people are willing to work and where they live, I think we might see more of a move to, you know what, it's okay if I don't commute every single day. Yeah. It's okay for me to work at home. You're not going to see that same stigma. I mean, I'm just going to put it out there, that mm. same stigma associated with, you know, what's going on with that person because they're working at home. Well, the fact of the matter is we've proven that the world can be very productive from home. And I think the tools are there. And I think it was re- it's really about things like social norms and social etiquette when you're in the office to be inclusive of the people that are not necessarily in the office. And I think that now with new kinds of services, we're going to be a lot more inclusive on the other side. I think the one that's debatable and one that comes up a lot is what does this do for education? And I think for for education, I think that um, the underserved and the non-served people in emerging regions around the world, they will take advantage of these kinds of tools. But I'm a little more cynical when it comes to the Western education system. I think that, unfortunately, it's a system that's based on classrooms. It's a system that was set up for classrooms. And I just think that um, there's sort of an eliteness that comes from being in that classroom at a university And I think we're probably going to fall back into that um, in the future. But I do think that on the other side, this is going to be a moment. And it's going to be a moment where things are going to change. I agree with you. I think you make some really, really good points. I hope you're right on a lot of them. Uh, And we'd love to keep checking in with you because we know you really have, you and your team, uh, your finger on the pulse of how we think about technology because you've got the data. We love the data. All right. Crawford Del Pret, thank you so much. President of IDC International Data Corp. Joining us on the phone from Framingham, Massachusetts. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is George Mateo, Chief Investment Officer at Key Private Bank, joining us on the phone from Cleveland. George, nice to have you here with us. Um, how do you look at this market? Bear market, or could we be uh, at the beginning of a new bull market? Well, great to be with you, and thanks for having me back. You know, I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, I think we're just going to be in this sideways chop for a while, so we'll have days like today where we'll feel good about things, and days will feel probably a little less good. So I think we just have to kind of fasten our seatbelt and hold on. And so what are you hearing from uh, customers and, and clients? And, and one of the reasons I'm especially interested to – I think we're both interested to hear you uh, answer that, George, is because you're not in New York City. You're there in, in Cleveland, and obviously I think this crisis looks uh, – while broadly the same, maybe individually, locally, and regionally, a little bit different. So how are how are people reacting? How are they interacting with you? Yeah, well, I hope you both are keeping safe, too, and all your listeners, for sure. I mean, I think Ohio is a little bit ahead of the curve. It seems like we've had a pretty progressive governor uh, get out in front of this, but I think everybody is feeling the same level of anxiety where, wherever you live. Uh, and that just kind of fuels more anxiety to some extent. But I think people are trying to be measured about it and trying to kind of maintain their composure, and investors need to do the same thing. 
So, you know, in spite of all this uncertainty, we really want to encourage people to maintain their long-term discipline and, and stay stay in the market to the extent they can and really stick to their long-term plan. And that's really the message we've been trying to emphasize. How many, though, of your clients, their long-term plan has really been upended by such a dramatic pullback in the equity markets? You know, good question, Charles. Not a lot, though. I mean, I think people... Uh, not to this extent, certainly, but I think people might have been anticipating some degree of volatility. We try to take a long-term approach. We try to counsel clients to expect volatility will be a, a feature of the investment uh, landscape. Again, the magnitude has probably been uh, unprecedented for sure, an often used word, but I think it fits. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people know that volatility is something that kind of comes with the territory. So we've got some great financial planning tools and techniques that really kind of focus that uh, focus on that first. And then from there, you can really hopefully build a long-term investment plan and stick to it in markets like today. So, George, we love talking names with you. Tell us about Microsoft. I'm especially interested because we had a great conversation just a little while ago with Crawford Del Pret over at IDC, you know, talking about uh, IT spending. But one of the bright spots, and maybe this is why you have this pick, uh, is around software. That obviously is an area where we've seen tremendous growth, and, and his team is essentially predicting that it's the one area in IT where we might still uh, see a little bit of optimism this year. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think it, again, speaks to the notion of really finding high-quality companies with really strong balance sheets, you know, people or companies that are led by strong management teams, and, and people can really identify with their services. Software, I think you're right, is kind of a go-to area. It's kind of a good core defensive name uh, within mm-hmm. the tech landscape. Really strong cash flow generation, strong balance sheet, good earnings visibility. I mean, everybody's earning visibility is a little bit uh, mired these days, but we think that Microsoft can shine through an environment like this going forward. A lot of good sector tailwinds at their back, too, that really can uh, drive that growth forward, we think. So does that mean when it dipped to below 140, uh, well below 140, that you guys were doing some buying? I think uh, the low, I'm just looking, the most recent low was around 134 and change or so. Did you do a bunch of buying into Microsoft? I wouldn't say we did a bunch of buying, but yeah, we've been nibbling at it uh, for okay. sure. It, it, it's come back, and um, you know, we still like the name, though. So on a long-term basis, we, we'd be buying it today, actually. What about something like a Dollar General? We've yeah, been talking I love a Dollar little, General. Yeah, we talk about this a lot, and we've been talking, um, Jason and I, about the overall retail sector and what's going mm-hmm. on. Um, tell us a bit about what your what your thesis is for this one. Well, to some extent, they're kind of a master of their own destiny. I mean, certainly the macro environment is going to be a headwind for a lot of folks, and hopefully these things are more short-term in nature. But they really do offer a best-of-breed format uh, within kind of a smaller size box. Um, They've got some really good levers they can pull to try and and enhance their merchandising. They've got some new um, initiatives that are really um, poised for some growth going forward. They've also got an environment where their their closest competitor is a little bit uh, hampered in in the near term. And so I think there's a lot of things they can do to kind of uh, get through this better than others. So I think they're well positioned over the long term as well. Well, and it's interesting to think about that name too, George, right? Like knowing enough to be dangerous about their history. You know, KKR bought them kind of at the tail end of the last boom, right before the financial crisis. And it was a great name to have as we went into a period of economic uncertainty where a discount uh, retailer may be more attractive and they are servicing uh, a big chunk of the country that is largely under market. Uh, or under-marketed or under-retailed uh, under in a lot of ways, yeah. right? Underserved, yeah. I agree with you, yeah, wholeheartedly. I think that's a 
that's a key uh, part of the thesis for sure. But I do you know, wonder, I do wonder too, that's going to be the segment of, I feel like our population that's going to be hit the hardest. So does a dollar general benefit or get hurt because of that? You know, there, there are some short-term headwinds for sure, but I think that they, they've proven to be seller operators. Uh, they're finding people, they're finding uh, ways to get people into the store. Some convenient options they've set up at the back of the store that allow people to pick up their goods, um, you know, without having to go into the store are a big part of their growth also. Um, but again, I think they're really kind of focusing on that core demographic, really freshen up the stores a little bit too, which will actually hopefully drive traffic and adding new categories uh, like food, for example, will be another key driver for that. And people still need to eat. Yeah, well, and one exactly, and, and one of the things that they have on their side, I think, right, uh, George, is this notion that they are in these underserved markets, and it, it's sort of the general part of the Dollar General that, like, they're the only game in town, or one of the few games in town, in a lot of these more uh, rural parts of the South and, and elsewhere. I think that's right. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The general part of the store is supposed to just the Dollar General. I think that's a good analogy. Yeah, they've definitely been hiring. I was just looking at some of the most recent headlines. They're hiring up to 50,000 new employees to support their operations. By the end of April, they were doing that. And then they were also giving a bunch of their employees a bunch of bonuses, like $35 million in bonuses. Yeah, yeah. no, it's really interesting. Uh, great, to, great to catch up with you. We really appreciate it. Uh, George Mateo is Chief Investment Officer at a key private bank. Stay uh, safe. On the phone from Cleveland. We hope you and your team uh, stay safe and, and hope you guys continue to be Ahead of the curve, as you say, uh, Mike DeWine, I believe, the governor of Ohio, uh, as George pointed out, you know, mm. he was one of the first. He moved the primary back. You know, there were a lot yeah, of uh, big actions right. uh, that uh, he was taking. I believe he's a Republican, too. You know, so it, it's an interesting uh, case study in many ways as we continue to talk about uh, governors and, and whatnot. So interesting to hear his perspective, uh, as always. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.